I pray that this um, series has been beneficial for those of you who have decided to be a part of it. Certainly, the issue of culture and politics whirls around us. And as we've talked about in the past, uh, our view of politics, our view of culture, is downstream of our belief system. It's downstream of our theology. It's downstream of our worldview. And what I would like to do is, before we get any further, is I'm going to open in prayer. I'm chiefly aware of, of my need for God's grace in, the, in, this, in this time. Our God, we thank you for how you have chosen to reveal yourself. God, if you had not revealed yourself, we could know nothing about you. We pray that you would reveal yourself to a greater degree, that we would see the world as you have made it, that we would see our nature as you have made it. And God, we pray that not only in seeing your nature and our nature and the nature of this world, but that it would cause us and push us to a sense of awe, to a sense of worship for what you have provided. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So, this week we're talking about identity and politics. I wrestled with the, the title for a little bit. But by way of review, we talked, we've been, over the last seven weeks, we've gone through gospel and politics, gospel being the crucial element in this whole discussion. And if you had not been a part of any other part of the series, I would commend you to go back and listen to that particular one. The second one was on Christian worldview. How do we understand the world based upon the reality that was created by God? How do we understand all of life, all of culture, all of politics, all of business, all of, name the area of thought, our view of the world impacts how we perceive that particular issue. Then we went on to competing worldviews. We talked about the church and the state relationship. We talked about a theology, a very basic theology of the silver government, rights in the first right. Those are the, the, some of the, the topics we've covered in the past. Um, I was not here last week. And again, I recognize that I'm only covering things in a very cursory fashion. I'm not looking to convince anybody really of anything. I'm hoping, hoping to provoke you to read books and have conversations with, each one, with one another uh, as husband and wife, as families, as those within the church. So last week, we talked, to summarize again what we covered, not last week, two weeks ago, we talked about rights and the first right. Rights, what is a right? I'm just going to summarize last, the last session very briefly. Rights, something we are entitled to or have a claim on. That's what we would declare a right. And these rights are downstream, again, how we understand rights is downstream of your worldview, of your theology. Those things will dictate what you declare a right to be. 
So will there be difficulty if you were to go into the legislature, I'm a, say I'm a congressman, and I'm surrounded by these people who have different worldviews? Are we going to come to the same conclusions as to what a right is? Are we going to come to the same conclusions as to where rights come from? No. Our rights have to be discovered. They have to be revealed. Revealed by the creator. Otherwise, we are left merely with things that come from man's imagination. They can be given, they can be taken away. The, the rights come from God, they are inalienable. Anybody remember what inalienable means? Something that cannot be taken away. Something that is inherent. And why would it be inalienable? It's inalienable because it was given by God. And you can see this worldview, at least in part with, uh, with what's, what some of the founding fathers gave us in the Declaration of Independence, which we've already had allusion to and re reference to uh, earlier in the sermon, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They had it very correct. Rights flow from the creator. So that's, that was last session. Now we're moving on to the issue of of our identity. Now this, as you have seen a repeated theme, I believe I've had a repeated theme, of the importance of understanding our nature as humans and how that impacts our view of culture and our view of politics. So what I'd like to do briefly is talk about a theology of identity. We've heard that word around, bantered around for the past five years, identity, identity politics, identity, what is, for our purposes, for this conversation, let me propose a theology of identity. So, where we started in week one and week two, Christian belief and its impact upon human identity. Where does our identity stand? In this conversation about what an identity is, what did God reveal to us? First off, and again, this is a recapitulation, a reminder of what we went through for the first and second week, God is the ultimate reality. He is the creator of all. God is both the source and fulfillment of life. That saying reams. I'm making a huge statement that already sets apart my thought from a lot of the cultural noise. Secondly, creation, all people were created, and we could say here as men and women, were intentionally designed by God, intentionally, intentionally designed, intentionally designed by God. Those words are purposeful. In his image for the purpose of having and enjoying fellowship with him and his creation. Sin, all right, what else, is, what else is forming our GCF's, my view on human nature? Sin, sin plunged all people into the lie and corruption that we do not need God. That he is not worthy 
that his words are not good, that we can create our own gods and ultimate purpose. This separation from God, of, from the God of life, brings guilt, corruption, and, spirit, and is spiritual death. Any thoughts there? If we have this as our starting point, theologically, worldview-wise, philosophically, that impacts our view of rights, and in fact, impacts our view of what human identity is. God's work. In grace, God provided redemption through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And you can go back to that first and, and second session to delve more into what creates our worldview, what creates our understanding of human identity. So when our de beliefs depart from this understanding, what occurs? If I have a car and I say, you know what? I'm sure this thing, I love, I love to eat um, candy corn. I actually really hate the stuff. It's a poor example. Don't know why my brain brought that out. I really like, I don't know, potato chips. I'm going to stuff the potato chips. I love my car. I'm going to stuff the potato chips into the gas tank. Okay, what happens in this very simple real-life example when I use something not in accordance with its design? I bring what? Ruin and havoc. Should we be surprised when we use life, human beings, and when we define human identity differently than God? Like that poor car that's now on the side of the highway choking on potato chips, it will bring havoc into society and into our lives. So, <clears throat> ideologies, based upon what we've talked about with our, with our understanding of who we are, ideologies that purport inferiority or superiority of one group of people based upon an inherited and an immutable physical attribute is a false teaching and denies that we are created equal in God's image. If we could all just, I mean, as a culture, if we could just stop and stand on that, that would resolve a fair amount of conflict. For some of the prevalent ideas now taking center stage, we need to go back to week three when we talked about competing worldviews. During that week, we talked about a worldview that states that there is no God, that there is no supernatural, there's only material atheism. We called it also, it could be referenced to as naturalism. So, in the 19th century, a variant of atheism developed, and we need to go back to the teachings of Karl Marx. Karl Marx has had a significant impact upon the world and continues to have a significant impact on the world. So, from this point forward, I'm gonna be discussing some views in broad strokes. I'm gonna be talking about uh, things that Someone may hold in part, but not in whole. Someone may knowingly or unknowingly hold parts of these views. Someone may hold to the concepts, but not be familiar with the terms that I'm going to use this morning. Someone may use the terms, but not actually hold to the views. What am I trying to say? Everyone is an individual and is, has nuanced views. 
that requires patience and understanding to understand where they are as an individual. Conversation and understanding is damaged by falsely attributing beliefs to others. Oh, she said this, it triggered me. She means all of this. No. She said this one thing. That requires us as people, it requires us as believers to say, to have a conversation, to get to know them. That requires some humility. While, and what we're really talking about is a concept of tribalism. I mentioned it before. Um... I'm from Colbert, all of you non-Colbert people, you're bad. Tribalism. And we tribalize along ridiculous lines. There are people at work who are angry at each other because they, they're, they're, they love this, the, a different football team. And the anger's real. We tribalize along ridiculous lines. And if we're gonna try to address those, tri those false tribal distinctions, we need to be aware of our own tribal tendencies in this regard. What am I referring to? Our own pride. Tribal, being tribalized is merely an expression of pride. So let's talk a little bit about Marxism. So with, I can see where I'm heading here. Karl Marx was a German philosopher in the 19th century. He worked primarily in the realm of political philosophy and was a, a, and was a famous advocate for communism. He co-wrote the Communist Manifesto and formed the basis of Marxism and communism. There are more, many important aspects to Karl Marx's broken worldview that impact our world today, but we're just going to focus on a couple of those in our context of what, when we're talking about identity. So, for purpose, for, so one thing that he said is that religion is the opate of the, of the masses. This, a religious view is the opate. That's what Marx said. He failed to recognize that he was not actually abandoning religious belief. What was he doing? He was merely creating his own religious belief. And that belief was that there is no God, there's only matter, but also, here's where an important element about this discussion comes up. Marx created a concept of the oppression binary that would go on to be developed to what we see today. This oppression binary. And I'll, I'll develop that. So man is, is perpetually in a class struggle between the haves and the have-nots, the oppressed and the oppressor. The issue is not sin against God, the issue is this binary of oppressed versus oppressor. The issue is not the heart of man, it is the outward structural systems of oppression. A different worldview with different implications. For Marx, the haves were the owning class, those who owned the capital, owned the businesses. That was in Marx's view. The have-nots were the working class. For Marx, the only salvation for, it was for the have-nots to overthrow the haves in revolution. That was his salvation. Reconciliation was not at all a part of his view. They were not to be reconciled with. They were to be 
overthrown and revolution. This in contrast, of course, to the Christian worldview and the concept of reconciliation. For, so the working man, for Marx, the oppressed man needed to overthrow the mechanisms of the haves. What were those mechanisms, according to Marx? Private property, private property ownership, and capitalism. Those were his mechanisms of oppression that he saw that were being used to oppress the working class. So in this, to answer this, oppression, inequality, and exploitation, he devised communism as the answer. What's been the result of communism throughout history? Communism was adopted by Stalin, by Mao, Mao by Pol Pot, in the name, all in the what? In the name of, of combating this binary oppression. What's been the result? We know the history, millions have died, and millions continue to die at the hands of this broken Worldview. Again, worldview is crucial in this discussion. So that brings us to the second point, the Frankfurt School. So again, timeline marks around 1840. In the 1920s, an influential group of, of intellectuals went beyond Marx's view. They coined the term critical theory to describe their project. They wanted to apply Marx's ideas beyond simply economic terms. Remember, Marx's terms were worker-owner, so it was an economic term for Marx. And they went beyond that to, to, to say, all right, this needs to go beyond those terms and wanted to apply it to culture, mass media, the under, and other ways in which we understand how power is operated to produce oppression. That's the worldview of critical theory. But even that was 80 years ago, and since then, critical theory has created entire disciplines, critical race theory, critical uh, critical queer theory, post-colonialism, critical legal studies. There are many areas of thought in this particular, uh, many uh, disciplines that are devoted to expressing this worldview in a particular way. So let's talk a little bit about what that critical theory is. So for purposes of the next segment, there's a broader concept of critical theory, and then there's a, a more new, there's a, a narrower conversation around critical race theory. I'm gonna, because it's been very dominant within our conversation as a culture, I'm gonna be focusing on critical race theory as I discuss the, the overall concepts of critical theory. So, what is critical theory known as today? And the terms, of course, like any slang terms, does anybody still say groovy? No, that's, that was a product of the 60s. Okay, you, okay, sorry. Not to call you out, I just called you out. Um, so in, these, these terms come and go. So it was critical theory. It could also be, in, in regards to the issue of race, anti-racism. And there's other terms that are, that are in use. So what are some of the terms? First is a concept that is crucial to this. This is a cornerstone. Uh, of critical theory. Society is divided by nature into dominant oppressor groups and subordinate oppressed groups in different ways. The dominant groups created these binaries, these differences, for the sake of press oppressing the minority. Did you get that last part? The dominant groups created these binaries for the purpose of oppression. So, D'Angelo in a book that she wrote, is, is Everyone Really Equal, wrote, quote, 
For every social group, there's an opposite group. The primary groups that we have, uh, that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, status, sex, uh, sectionality, religion, and nationality. Oh, there's the quote right there. That's from a book that she co-authored. Again, is everyone really equal? And here is um, a, a picture from one of the pages. So, we can see people of color. The, the oppression is racism. The dominant group, white. Well, hold it here. There has been racism in the past, correct? Well, of course, this is where this conversation can get confusing. There has been racism in the past. But what we're talking about here is a whole different, we're talking about an, an actual worldview in which whites made the class of colored people to oppress them with racism. The owning class made poor for classism. Men differentiated gender between men and women and cisgender for the sake of power. Heterosexuals, the heteronorm you've heard of the heteronormative culture. That's, that's, it's, it's a way uh, uh, to, to identify that this heteronormativity is an oppressive state uh, that uh, is put into place for the sake of oppressing the minority. So the list goes on. Now, each of us could look at this and say, yes, one group has at one time throughout history and currently uh, expressing some, some sin against that group. But, the, but critical theory goes beyond that and saying each of these groups intentionally created that for oppression. It's a different worldview than Christianity. The, so let's go through some other terms of the critical theory worldview. Intersectionality, all the interconnected areas in which where one falls into an oppressed grouping. So I, I'm standing here, I'm a white guy. If, if a, a person were of different, if they were disabled, black, lesbian, then that intersectionality indicates that there are areas in which they are more and more oppressed. A black man standing up here would be more oppressed than me, but less so than that black lesbian. So, and these concepts build upon one another. Bear with me here. Now, as it specifically relates uh, to the issue of race, whiteness or white privilege, <clears throat> this, this uh, correlates to an unearned advantages and benefits that come with being perceived as white in a racially stratified society. Again, whiteness is a construction for the purpose of oppression. White adjacent, people of color who deny the creation of the binary, uh, uh, the binary by the powerful as described. So if you're a person of color and you say, I don't buy this, oh, you're just white adjacent. You're in, you were part of the oppressive problem here. You're white adjacent. White fragility. Whites that don't like the conversation around critical theory. Those in this category are fragile. My book, my, my white, Kara was offered a book, White Fragility by D'Angelo, and that's the whole premise of this book. If you're incapable, if, as a, as a non-person, as a person who's not of color, white, 
and you're, and you're uncomfortable with discussing critical theory, perceptions of race, then you're fragile. So the, the worldview works itself out in this way. So in colorblindness, those to whom, so, I, and I've done this myself, in conversations I said, I, I have friends of many racial groups and I base my friendship upon their character, our, our, our like interests. It really has nothing to do with the person, the fact that I, I have genetic roots that go back to France and well, this guy's from Italy, and this guy's from you know, Nepal. It has nothing to do with that. So colorblindness is actually, is actually an issue because it denies the intersectional reality and the oppression binary. If you say you're colorblind, you might be saying, well, I'm not racist. Well, hold it. Unless you're anti-racist, you really are a racist. And that's the conversation. Now again, as I go through these terms, I've already said it, you might someone here, you might talk to someone who, who says one of these terms not knowing what the term means. And that's often, I mean, I do that. I often use terms I don't know what that means. And again, have a conversation. Don't assume that you know exactly what that person is saying. So that's the social binary. Any questions around the social binary? That it was, it was a construct created by an oppressive class for the sake of oppressing. Any, any questions? Was it unclear? Clear? So next, next, let's talk about oppression through ideology. So I would agree with critical theory when it states that oppression is when someone is subject to violence. Yes, absolutely. When someone is subject to saying, get out of here, no whites allowed in this, in this room. Get out of here, no, whatever race, you're not allowed in this room. Yes, that's, that's, that is evil. However, critical theory goes on to, to mention that oppression is being, is being subjected to the oppressive binary system. So uh, I'm a, I could be Oprah, worth, I don't know, a billion dollars or so. But because Oprah is a black woman, she's in a system, she's, she is... She is being oppressed by the, by the white binary, by whiteness, by white supremacy. The idea here is that you can be oppressed not because you're actually being coerced or threatened, but because of the ideas themselves. The binary roles are in and of themselves oppressive. Heteronormative white supremacist patriarchy is the binary being in a, in a society that upholds this oppression. That's, that's the worldview. And again, it's not that white supremacy does not exist. Of course it exists, and it's evil because it denies the, that we are all created as men in the image of God. So, one aspect with this oppression through ideology is that critical theory does not pose this in terms of individuals. I myself was oppressed. No, it's because I, be, I belong in a group that, is, as, that has been declared oppressed. So it's not the individual, it's your, your, it's your identity with that particular group. Any questions there? 
Yeah. So, yes, I could, I could, I don't have any cited literature, but as, now again, you could find proponents of someone who could say I'm anti-racist, and they wouldn't, they would disagree with this. And there's going to be terms in which people, it's not, there's disagreement within the circle, so I need to emphasize that. Um, but yes, in the literature, there's lots of, in the literature saying, because, because I am, in a, a heteronormative white supremacist society, regardless of how I'm doing as an individual, I'm an oppressed person. So, I don't have anything for you right now, but, but I mean, that's something that we can talk about afterwards. I'd be happy to. Lived experience. Oppressed people have more access, access to truths about reality through their lived intersectionality, intersectional identity. They have special insight into and access truths because, because they are oppressed. Whereas people who are the oppressors are actually blinded by their privilege. This lived experience does not involve, again, about around individuality, this lived experience does not involve one's own actual experiences, sometimes, sometimes. Whereas it has more to do with how it falls into intersectionality. Now, of course, again, there's lots of caveats that I need to put around this. You can have a conversation with someone who is who has been treated poorly by people around them. So, in this situation, the greater the number of intersectional intersectional areas one identifies with, the greater their moral authority. In this view, the oppressed. Voices need to be elevated, and the oppressor voices need to be silenced. You're just a white guy. You, you, you're just a man. You, you, you can't make any conversation about this particular topic. So, <clears throat> the white man, again, will have less moral authority because of their melanin. So, lived experience. A fourth one that I would, I would say would be identity, not truth. Intersectional identity is ultimately truth claims. Um, uh, so sorry, intersectional identity states that ultimate truth claims are actually a part of the structural oppressive system. For some in this thought, the great issue the great overarching story is not, is something true? And let me pull up, this is a poster from uh, 2020 that was in the Smithsonian. Why was it in the Smithsonian? Because there are very, a lot of people who were very influential that put this in the Smithsonian, and, and this is a representative in higher learning, this is representative throughout government, and as you look at this, uh, it's still a bit, eye a bit of an eye chart. I have it in, uh, it'll be posted in the notes if any of you are interested. But these are some of the things that are aspects of white culture. Again, white culture is something that is oppressive in and of itself. And this is where you would have self-reliance. That's an aspect of white culture. The nuclear family, having, having a mother and a father and, and children, having objective 
rational, clear thinking. So they're actually stating this, objective, rational, clear thinking. So you can't, it, to a person who actually believes this way, how do you have an, a rational discussion about the, t the topic? Well, you are white. That's all I need to know. You're, you are, we can't have a conversation. So other things to, to pull out of here, cause and effect relationships. Hold it, science itself becomes a manufactured element of whiteness. Christianity itself, Christianity is the norm. Respect for authority, value of ownership of goods and property, delayed gratification, Western civilization itself, politeness, decision making. So this sounds to me like what? A worldview. This is not saying don't be mean. This is saying, this is, in this worldview, all these things are a part of the hierarchy that needs to be torn down and addressed. So let's talk very briefly about that whole statement about the nuclear family and, and how that's a part of whiteness. Um, this poster is in complete agreement with the organization, I'll say this again, the organization of Black Lives Matter. If you look back when it was, uh, when it was brought into existence, the BLM, the, the organization itself, started, was started by three people trained in Marxism, and that they have a, a statement on, on the website from 2020, and I posted a link to it on, this, on, this doc, on my document that on the notes I'll, I'll put up. It's a clear presentation of critical theory and the desired end goals of critical theory. And this is the statement from that 2020 BLM What We Believe statement. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care about one another, especially our children. So again, we are creating a, a whole different worldview with very different implications here. For, now, to take a step back, uh, this, uh, the, the issue of family is not simply an issue with the Smithsonian. It's not simply an issue with Black Lives Matter. That was one of the core tenets of Karl Marx himself. Karl Marx saw that the family unit should be destroyed and that, that children should be brought up by society. A very different view. So, as he, as Karl Marx has this, what is the end, what is the end goal of critical theory? The end goal is social justice, or we, in, again, in, in this context, terms are used differently. Are we, as Christians, concerned about justice? Absolutely. If we are not, then we are not being biblical. So with the goal of this is social justice, anti-racism, tearing down, and what that means is tearing down the binary. Destroy the false binary distinctions that were created for the sake of power and oppression the goal is not merely to understand these inequalities, but to erase them. Their goal is liberation. They want to free people from oppression in all of its various forms by tearing down this oppressive system, this binary. So this was, again, we only have to go back four years. This was hot, hot material, very controversial four years ago. How relevant is this last week um, Washington State had a, a, a three-day seminar for uh, the, the leading, the leading um, 
individuals for public education in Washington State. The key speaker spoke about um, whiteness and about being anti-racist. So this is very prevalent. It's, it's, it's an ongoing worldview that has influence upon every part of our society. And with that uh, seminar last week, influence upon higher, not higher education, upon uh, secondary and primary education. So let me ask, and this is a question for all of you, if you consider the Christian worldview, and now you consider this worldview, what are some of the implications? What's that? Certain people shouldn't speak. People who are oppressors, if I say that someone's an oppressor, that's to make a moral judgment. They're inferior. Someone who is an oppressor is morally inferior. People who are oppressors, and that is morally inferior because of their skin color. What do we call this biblically? If I'm inferior because of my skin color, what do we call that? It's racism. So, interestingly enough, in, a, in, a, in, in attempts, critical theory in attempts, in attempting to address racism creates more conflict. Because there's no way for me to, how do I, as a white person, uh, actually I'm a little bit Indian, I'm, I'm a little bit smorgasbord, but we won't go into that, but how do I reconcile with this? There's no way to. I can't make a single time of, a, of atonement. It has to be an ongoing silence for the rest of my life because I'm a part of the oppressing class. I, I need to not talk. I need to, I need to go to every person of color and say, I'm sorry, I'm a part of the, the, the oppressive class. Now, I recognize, again, I'm gonna keep saying this, nuance. Not everybody will say this, but you look on the internet, you look at some conversations, <clears throat> and that's being proposed. So the, those who are oppressors can never atone. Simply perpetual silent penance is the only option. How is this different? How is this different from the beauty of the gospel? Where I can come to a brother because I personally sinned against them and say, please forgive me. How can I, how can I apologize for something my great-great-grandfather did? I don't know. I haven't, haven't, maybe he was a slave owner, maybe he was enslaved in North Africa, I don't know. How do we apologize for something that didn't happen to me? And if you remember, several weeks ago, we talked about um, in the Old Testament, a sister was raped and the brothers went out and killed the whole village. That's kind of a similar, and that was, we, we identified that as wicked. Them going out and killing that whole village because their, a sister was raped, was not justice. What we see here is not justice either. So that brings us to a concept of social justice versus individual justice. Justice is always individual. If I sin against you, if I slap you, I assault you, steal from you, you don't go to my family, you don't go to my neighborhood, hey, you guys live with the oppressor in his neighborhood. You, you, you know, it's, justice is not a group thing, it's an individual thing. 
Now can groups be oppressed? Yes, we, we don't have to look very far. Chattel slavery in the early American uh, uh, colonial area, wicked. The oppression of Jews in, in the Holocaust, that's, uh, these uh, wicked. So let me give a couple quotes here. Vody Bauckham from the Fault Lines, recognize, recognize the difference between the voice of the good shepherd who calls you to love all the sheep and the voice of the enemy that tells you that some of them are guilty, blind, ignorant oppressors, and others are oppressed based upon their melanin. Should I come into church and say, you're an oppressor, you're an oppressor, you're oppressed. There's no reconciliation. There's permanent conflict there. Another quote, a lengthy one, bear with me here, also from Vody Bauckham on Fault Lines. I have heard a mantra lately that rings hollow in my ears. There can be no reconciliation without justice. When I hear that, I want to scream, yes, and the death of Christ is that justice. All other justice is proximate and insufficient. It is because of Christ's work on the cross that we can heed the apostles' admonition to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Ephesians. Who am I to tell a white brother, and the, the author Vody Bauckham is African-American, who am I to tell a white brother that he cannot be reconciled to me unless he has drudged up all the racial sins of his and his ancestors' past and made proper restitution? Christ has atoned for sin. That is where hope is in the gospel. That is the difference. That is the difference relationally that this worldview brings. That is the difference culturally and politically that we see. So, discussing race. What if our 70-year-old neighbor, Mildred, I'll call her, walks out by the fence and states that she's anti-racist? What do we do? Does that mean that Mildred is actually plotting a Marxist revolution? That she's overlooking to overthrow the patriarchy? Well, maybe, but probably not. Probably not. My appeal to you is, is that each, again, each person, this is my emphasis, each person is different. People often use terms or hold ideas without really understanding them. So what could you say to Mildred in that situation? Thank you. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? It's not accusing them of anything. It's asking, I want to understand, I'm present with you, I'm listening, I'm interested, what do you mean by that? Again, is there racism, oppression, and victimization around the world? Of course. Is it possible for someone to be a victim of bigotry and not adhere to critical theory? Of course. In discussing issues around oppression, racism, and sexism, are we, again to, we are again to seek to understand the person in front of us. The conversation is nuanced and requires a few things. It requires us to be what? Patient and humble, loving, compassionate. Why? 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 
what would compel us to live this way, to, to live with compassion when someone is accused us of being a racist falsely? I've been, I've been falsely caused, accused of racism because I didn't have a certain um, foreign policy. I said, well, what makes you, th what makes you think that? Have, have I said something that's racist? We, we had a conversation. So why would we do this? We are all, again, created in God's image. As image bearers, we seek justice. As believers in Christ, as those who are assembled here, what is to be the compelling uh, issue for our relationship to one another? Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. What's that saying? Christ, thank you, Christ broke down all the barriers and all the divisions, all the tribalism, all the reasons for petty, petulant, self-idolizing pride. He's not saying there are, there are no distinctions between people. Our Kara and I, man and wife, uh, man and, and woman, are, 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 is that dividing wall now obliterated? No, that's not the point of the text. But it, as believers... We accept one another. We come to one another. So this, this issue of critical theory also weighs in with the issue of gender, uh, with queer theory. Queer theory states that uh, the, the binary oppression as it's applied to sexuality and gender. Remember that list of, that I just put up here, that list of different groups? That ge gender, as far as being cis man, cis woman, uh, transgender was, was part of that conversation. However, on this issue of gender, there's something else. It's a kind of Gnosticism. It's a different belief. A Gnosticism that says the body is different from the inner man. The, world, the Christian worldview says that God created you intentionally. This Gnosticism says that what your body is can be very different from what you are on the inward and to be and this uh, uh, queer theory would say that whatever you feel like on the inside needs to be validated on the outside, even if it means surgery. Because your body is just a shell. So, the internal sense of self is to be immediately indulged and affirmed. Again, surgically if necessary. Let's take a step back. So there's, we have critical theory that's bringing this to this point of, of queer theory. We also have a development that, that took place when, we, when as a culture and then as a political body, we said marriage is no longer a man and a woman. Gender is irrelevant in that equation. It could be woman, woman, man, man. It's still a marriage. That also, by breaking down that binary, that also brings us to the point where we are as a culture today in saying that gender is, is really fluid. Well, and because of that, denying the sexual binary itself, treating people as if they're androgynous or interchangeable is really the, the end point. So, in this brief discussion about critical theory, <clears throat> talking about race, talking about really a whole number of different categories, here talking about gender, 
we, I would simply point you to a text that we've talked about many times that God created us in his own image and he created them himself, he created them male and female. And he created us, why? Are we apes? Are we just piles of atoms? We are creating his image to have relationship with him. That's glorious. That's glorious good news that we can bring to someone who's very confused on these issues. So this, this worldview holds sway in many places. So how do we address this? The issue of race is addressed with the biblical nature of man's identity. We, again, we were created in God's image. The issue of gender is addressed with the biblical nature of man. Understanding man's identity. We were created in God's image, male and female. So, in conclusion, actually, let me back up. Again, why do we teach these things? Why, why would I stand up here and do this? Out of a sense of compassion, Again, this, this, this worthy quote, quote from Nancy Piercy, an author that I commend all of her works to you. Christians should speak out on moral issues not because they feel offended or because their cherished beliefs are threatened, but because they have compassion for those who are trapped by destructive ideas. It's not that, I, hold it, this is, I'm all prideful because this is my position and I need to defend it. No, it has nothing to do with my pride. I see my neighbor being hurt by, by a false worldview. So in, in wrapping up this session, I, I've, I've concluded with this, and I think I'll probably conclude with this for the rest of the, of the series, uh, as a quote from Jonathan Lehman, How the Nations Rage. As we look at this, should we get hysterical and, and, and full of anxiety about what's going on with culture? Should I, what should be our disposition when we talk about political matters? And really, the whole... I could say the whole last 40 minutes could be leading up really to this point for us as believers. But what might it, and this is again Jonathan Lehman, but what might it look like for the church's politics if we became convinced, really convinced, both that we have trouble in this world and that Jesus has overcome this world as he promised? Might we present a strange and winsome confidence that is not desperate to win the cultural wars, but is, but is also tenderly and courageously committed to the good of others. Any questions, any thoughts? We have just a couple minutes before we need to wrap. Yes. So the question was, are there times in which those who fall into those intersectional groups, are they manipulating uh, those who are in the oppress oppressor groups? Absolutely. They could be doing, however, here's the issue. They could be doing it knowingly, knowing that they, they, they hold to a fraudulent system, or they could be doing, most likely, they're doing it genuinely, thinking that, hold it. Eli, you need to be quiet because you just don't get it because you're the oppressor group. They could be really genuine. 
So, you know, that gets to the heart matter. Are they doing it manipulatively? That could absolutely be happening. Do people tend to manipulate other people? Absolutely. I don't know if that was, that was all, at all helpful. Questions? So by way of recommendations and resources, Critical Dilemma, Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society by Neil um, Shivni, I don't know how to say his last name. Thank you. Shenvi. Uh, highly recommend this. Uh, there's the, uh, the code uh, to order that. A different one. So that focuses upon the theory and the worldview. And that's a whole different issue. And that's what I, my main thrust was today. Beyond racial gridlock, embracing mutual responsibility, that has more to do with people who are being hurt because of hurt that, that they either actually incurred or they think they occurred through uh, being subject to a wrong worldview. There's reconciliation to be done between uh, yourself and those who feel hurt. Now, what do I mean by that? Do I have to apologize? No, I need to come to them as a brother and talk about the issues compassionately, patiently. Gender ideology, what do Christians need to know? That's this, that top book is actually uh, in the bookstore that's available, outstanding book on the issue. Five Lies of the Anti-Christian Age and Strange New World. I would recommend all of these works. Let me close in prayer. Our God, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you that you have made us one in Christ. We thank you that you have created us in your image for the purpose of fellowship with you. We thank you for your goodness and, your, and this time. Amen.